Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis and Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And in today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Trina Spencer about her paper, 10 Instructional Design Efforts to Help Behavior Analysts Take Up the Torch of Direct Instruction. This, of course, is part of the special issue in behavior analysis and practice focused on direct instruction and precision teaching. Our guest, Dr. Amy Spencer, is an associate professor at the Right Path Research and Innovation Center in the Department of Child and Family Studies at the University of South Florida. She earned a specialist degree in school psychology and a Ph.D. in disability disciplines from Utah State University with an emphasis in language and literacy and early childhood special education. She's a board-certified behavior analyst and has been since 2001. Trina has worked with a wide variety of clients and and a wide variety of of collaborators throughout her career. She has published 52 articles in peer-reviewed journals, 5 book chapters, and 22 non-peer-reviewed articles, briefs, and encyclopedia entries. Much of her research is available at her website, trinatoolbox.com. During the interview with Trina, I found her to be an absolute treasure trove of information about successful collaboration and information related to direct instruction. So I'm very excited to share this interview with you. Without further ado, here's my interview with Trina Spencer. Hello, Trina, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. We're excited to have you and to, to learn about the paper you wrote about in this special issue focused on direct instruction and precision teaching published in Behavior Analysis and Practice. Before we jump into your specific paper, we always love to learn a little bit about the guests that come on to the show. So would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, what your current role is, maybe your background, and, and maybe why you're interested specifically in direct instruction? Sure, no problem. Well, my current role, um, I am an associate professor at the University of South Florida, and um, I'm in a less traditional role. Um, I am a tenured faculty, but I'm in a research um, in a research center called Right Path Research and Innovation Center, and it is an interdisciplinary center. I'm the only behavior analyst. There are other behavior analysts at my university, but I'm the only behavior analyst in my division. And I've honestly been in that kind of position for many years in most of my roles. Um, so we, I helped develop this research center here with a focus of reducing, you know, uh, disparities among vulnerable populations, including, you know, kids from low SES homes, um, kids with disabilities, kids who speak English as a second language, that kind of thing. So that's the focus of that work. Um, 
In particular, my research is around academic language and how we can build that to promote or prevent reading comprehension problems and general academic problems. Um, that's kind of what I'm doing right now, but I've been all over the place, I guess. Uh, I got my PhD from Utah State University in 2009 with Tim Slocum. So you can see a little bit of my direct instruction background and influence from him. And uh, before that, I also did a, a um, kind of an internship at the Morningside Academy in Seattle. And that was in the year 2000 or 2001. I think it was 2000. I can't remember. 2001, maybe. <laughs> um, anyway, so I have been interested in direct instruction since the day I heard about it, which was probably in the 90s, I would have to say. And everything that I um, learned, uh, I could really easily see it applied across many domains. And because I consider myself very interdisciplinary, not am I just a behavior analyst, but I also have training in school psychology, special education, and speech language pathology or communication sciences is where I disseminate a lot of my research. So because I'm in all these other disciplines, I like to take what's great and common with all of them, right? If you have really good generative repertoires, then you can kind of generalize your skill set to any content domain. And I, I guess I do that on a daily basis with my work. So I wish we could almost have a complete aside of this interview just to talk about your interdisciplinary work. When I was looking at your bio and seeing the amount of work you do, like in speech pathology, uh, I think that, uh, and I'm sure you agree that our field probably, you know, has a tendency of struggling with how to navigate some of those interdisciplinary works. And it sounds like you've got a lot of experience in that area. Mm -hmm. I do. And I, and I really live in all of those areas. And so, um, you know, sometimes less so in the behavior analysis, because that's where that's my origin, you know, and so I'm really, I really try to think outside the box and to play in the different sandbox and try to bring behavior analysis to the, you know, the content disciplines that really need that science, you know, and to try to do it in a way that's um, applicable or, you know, polite and respectful. And to be honest, I feel like I've had lots of successes there because my interventions and assessment tools are like very popular in speech language pathology and in like um, education realms and less understood or done. They don't even know it in behavior analysis sometimes. They're, and, you know, I hear people all the time, they'll say, you know, like the speech language pathologist is talking to the behavior analyst like, hey, we should use this. And the behavior analyst is like, no, no, that's not behavior analytic. And the SLP goes, are you sure? A behavior analyst developed it. <laughs> so it's a kind of a funny little like way just because my stuff is less known in behavior analysis, but it's very popular outside of behavior analysis, even though it works because of the behavior analysis, right? Obviously. Yeah, I think that that speaks to how insular uh, some 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 groups within behavior analysis can get about if it's not published in this journal or by this group of researchers, we kind of have our blinders on to it and, and we could be presented good behavior analytic evidence based strategies and sometimes not even recognize it as such. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and I think uh, perhaps a good segue into direct instruction and talking about direct instruction, your paper, because there are a decent amount of behavior analysts who haven't 
come into contact with with direct instruction and and have a full understanding of what that is and what that has to offer. So as we talked about at the beginning, your paper is part of a sort of a special issue focused on direct instruction and precision teaching. And so this sort of fits into a, a, a grouping of articles within this topic, but your specific topic is the 10 instructional design efforts to help behavior analysts take up the torch of direct instruction. And although we'll have a few episodes focused on direct instruction, I'm asking each author that comes on the show to provide just a general sort of explanation or definition of what direct instruction is. Okay, I kind of expected you would ask that question because there are actually multiple definitions of the phrase direct instruction. Um, in, in my paper, I'm using the following definition. It's a model for teaching that integrates specialized design principles and effective strategies for delivering that instruction. Okay. So it's, you could say it's a specialized design um, set of principles for specialized uh, instructional design, but also that it's like a technology, right? If we talk about it, as a technology, like in behavior analysis, we, we talk about transfer of technology or, you know, really um, generalizing our technology to other fields. And it is a technology that can be, um, you know, generalized or transferred to other domains. And this technology can really guide the planning and promotion of small learning increments, right? And they're very carefully designed and precise in their execution for maximum efficiency. Um, so that's the definition of direct instruction I like to use. When, when I was first introduced to the concept of, of direct instruction, I was taught the definition the same way that you're describing it, that it's both sort of a, a programmatic or curriculum based. I would say that it's a, it's a category of programs that are published and commercialized. That is true. But I make a distinction that that's not necessarily what I'm promoting here, because to be able to do that, like Zig Engelman, right, he and his his colleagues developed a number of direct instruction programs that have that label direct instruction. But they got that label because of the technology behind it. You know, it's not because it's published or whatever. It's 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 because of the technology behind it. And so what I'm saying is that behavior analysts might know reading mastery or language for learning. These are, these are curricula names, you know, that are direct instruction programs. They may know that and think that that's all direct instruction is. And my paper really makes the claim that it is so much more than that, right? Those are just products of that technology and that that technology is useful and can be, you know, applied in almost any kind of learning context. And that's the, that's the beauty that I really am trying to uh, express in, in this paper, that it is not just that. You, as any behavior analyst working in whatever realm you are, but you know, let's say children with disabilities is a common one, direct instruction as a technology applies very, very well. And that it's a technology that we haven't, as a field, been teaching very um, consistently to our new behavior analytic students, and we should be. And and that technology, the direct instruction technology is both the curriculum design aspect 
and the instruction delivery aspect. Am I understanding yes. that correctly? Yes, exactly. There's, there's design, there's principles of the design that are absolutely critical, but then there's like things we know from research that are effective delivery systems, right? And so direct instruction kind of merges those two things and thinks about the delivery and the design at the same time. And in, in your paper is focused on sort of programming direct instructions or 10 critical aspects of programming direct instruction. Now, you mentioned this just a moment ago that a lot of people see the published curricula within direct instruction as being sort of the proper direct instruction, or I've heard the term big DI referring to like the published curriculum in direct instruction and little DI referring to applications of direct instructions that don't follow follow the, the published curriculum. Do you find that distinction helpful or do you think that's actually creating a false dichotomy between those two approaches? So I, I'm going to give you a different um, set of definitions or ways to differentiate those two things. So big DI, big D, big I, all right, that is what I've just described. It's not just the label of the curricula, but it's also these principles of instructional design with the effective delivery um, approaches um, and this, this technology, okay? So that the big DI gets all of those labels. The little DI, little I are direct instruction that comes from the education realm, right? And it is actually synonymous with something like explicit instruction. I'm directly teaching something. And to be honest, there are no principles like there are with the big DI. It's just that, hey, we're directly teaching. So direct instruction really just means explicit instruction, okay? So, so in, in many cases though, in the generic education realm, you would say direct instruction because the teacher is actually modeling and telling what the teacher or what the students should say and do, and then reinforcing that. So in some ways it looks similar, right? But that little d, little i doesn't necessarily have the same and the comprehensiveness of the principles and technology that the big di does. Gotcha. So that's probably a better distinction. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and especially because, I mean, for, for our intents and purposes, what some people would refer to as a uh, little di then really isn't re really re functionally related to to what you know some people call big di in the yeah. sense that it's a, a programmatic approach to yeah. curriculum design and, and instruction yeah. it's kind of a it's more of like a looser term that educators would use gotcha that's that's extremely helpful now within your paper you, you talk about the sort of the principles or sort of the, the 10 critical components of, of direct instruction programming. Um, to, I guess maybe it makes the most sense just to start off by looking at the first piece and we'll go one by one uh, throughout your, your list here. But for the listeners, uh, I'll, I often do this, but I'm going to go ahead and plug the, the tables that are embedded throughout this article are extremely helpful visualizations of, of looking at how all of these, these 10 components sort of um, connect together and ultimately build a comprehensive approach. And so 
we're going to go through piece by piece looking at each of the 10 individually, but I do recommend that anyone download or everyone download the, the paper and check out the, at least the tables within the paper. Now the first component or, or the first category you outline in the paper is identifying generalizable strategies to teach. Could you explain what that means and why that's important? Absolutely. Um, can I make one other clarification though, before we get started and then of I'll ask, ask that, yeah, answer that question. The title of my paper, I really struggled with, and this, this might resonate with some other people who know DI. Um, I, I characterized my 10 steps really as efforts, design mm. efforts. And the primary reason for that is the components of DI are slightly different right? And have been presented in previous papers or book chapters, you know, years ago, the components of DI and the principles of DI have also been, you know, explicated somewhere else. And I was not just redoing those things. I, I was trying to do something different and something that was really um, targeted to a behavior analytic practitioner. Okay. So it wasn't just like, exposition about direct instruction. It was what are the action steps a behavioral practitioner can take the efforts, right? What do I've got it? What do I have to accomplish to be able to do this in my setting? And so I did, I did really grapple with like how to talk about them. And really that's what my paper was supposed to be in context with the others. There are many other papers in the special issue. Um, it, in the behavior analysis and practice and in perspectives, but mine was supposed to be more action oriented, you know, speaking to the clinicians in our field, what can they do? Because there's a lot of lip service about what something is and what the mm. components are, but that doesn't necessarily give you how to do it. And so that's, that's why mine says efforts. They're called design efforts. Okay. That's awesome. Good. With the with the effort piece, you're saying these are things any practitioner can pick up and do right now. Do you see these 10 efforts as being necessarily linked and, and like they need to be put together or for a, a clinician or, or even a director or supervisor who's interested in DI? And, and, and they're going to try to pick up pieces of DI. Could they do an add-in one piece at a time, or does this need to be systematic, the whole approach all at once? So I would say if it's not systematic and comprehensive, it's not real DI, right? Then you're kind of like mm, mingling stuff, you know, and I think behavior analysts have a pretty good understanding when they start you know, pulling stuff from here, pulling stuff from there, you're no longer systematic, your efficiency goes down, your effectiveness goes down. And while that might be fun and creative, that's mm -hmm. probably not what I would recommend. So yeah, I think the efforts go together. I think there are some efforts that people are going to already recognize. They go like, oh, okay, I do this, right? But the trick is that you need to do them, lace them or, you know, tie them all together so that you get maximum efficiency and effectiveness. Um, yeah. That's, that's really helpful and, and really important to note for the listeners out there. So when we look at this list of the 10 efforts, I think the best way to go about breaking each one down is just to go step by step. I don't think there's any point in really going here are all the 10 and how they fit in together. I think that would be a lot 
so we can start with the the first component. Before we do, I'll, I'll throw in a quick plug for the listeners again to check out the tables published in the article. Uh, they really uh, help demonstrate how all of these tie together and provide just a quick synthesized look at, at each of these steps. Now, the first effort you describe within the paper is identify generalizable strategies to teach. Could you describe what that is and, and why that's important? Sure. So if you're going to teach something, which many behavior analysts are in the business of teaching people, kids, you know, you really have to understand what it is you want that learner to do. And um, oftentimes behavior analysts are using kind of like, you know, objective checklists, you know, like that have lists and lists and lists of little teeny discrete behaviors. And I say discrete because that ends up, you know, corresponding to how we teach them too. discreetly. I'm going to teach this one and then I'm going to teach this one and then I'm going to teach this one. And that these things are generally separate and discrete from one another. Well, direct instruction is just as systematic as, you know, a traditional discrete trial teaching. But the key piece is that we're actually looking for a generalizable repertoire something that can be used in multiple contexts in multiple ways when the correct stimulus conditions are are available right or present themselves so i mean it's really difficult to say that hey this is a generalizable skill but what that's what that's what the trick is to find the generalizable skill that we're looking for so in my area um in my research area storytelling is the generalizable skill that I often work work for um, or work towards. And the reason why I do oral storytelling is because it's key to listening comprehension, reading comprehension, reading, writing, and anything you need related to math, science, and social studies. So it's kind of at the core of all these other areas. So if I teach this one skill that can be generalized in all these content areas, then I'm very efficient, right? I can teach this. Um, and I can also teach it in a way that uh, it will kind of like open up or you pivot to all these other things. Or sometimes we call those behavioral cusps where like if you teach this repertoire, then you get all these other things for free. Um, so that's the kind of skill that we're looking for in direct instruction. Now, you can certainly use, you know, in direct instruction delivery methods to teach any kind of discrete skill. Right. And I'm not saying that you can't. It's that what we're ultimately after is a is a repertoire of hierarchical skills that get you the maximum benefit for the least amount of work. Do you have recommendations for folks who are interested in doing this that that understand the importance of targeting generalizable skills? But, but may not know where to begin. Like I've got a client, uh, certainly has a, a whole list of, of skills that they would benefit from having. Where do I even begin by thinking about generalizable skills? That seems like it's a, a very sort of specific skill set that, that yeah. I would need. So, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, and I think, I think you're right. I mean, you were sort of admitting that maybe behavior endless aren't in the best position to like be able to say this is it because our tools are very discreet, you know, and they're, they're, they're very like small, fine grained kind of things. So here's my recommendations. One, I would observe typically developing 
individuals in that realm. All right. If you're working with, you know, children with disabilities, then go see what other kids are doing and kind of make note and, um, you know, things that you might want to jot down are what are the tool skills required to do this task? What are the component skills required to do this task and composite skills? So those are hierarchical, like your tool skills are really, really basic, pointing, reaching, touching, grabbing, twisting, little things like that. Um, you know, and then even like your basic, uh, you know, repertoires of receptive and, and expressive language, like pointing and tacting, you know, but you need those basic things to have higher level repertoires, such as like reading or writing, right? Those are really complex. So I would definitely encourage them to observe and then to look outside of our domain, all right? Because speech language pathologists, reading teachers, special ed teachers, you know, math teachers, whatever, they're working at these like high gener generalizable strategies. That's where they are. The trouble is, is that they would be more effective if they knew how to get the, the discrete skills to line up to build towards those repertoires, which in fact, they, they sometimes are at the, at the opposite end of the loss, right? They've got the generalizable skills, but don't know all the things that need to come before it. And whereas behavior analysts are doing all these discrete skills, they don't necessarily know what those generalizable skills are. Um, let me just say too that one of the things that really interests me about this is I, I, I don't have not done a, my, at least my research literature is not um, explicitly or exclusively, sorry, exclusively for children with autism, but I have worked in that realm. And one of the things that really um, struck me was that there was a lot of teaching in a discrete trial way that did not need to occur that way. Mm -hmm. And it would really bother me because it was low efficiency and we were teaching children the opposite of what I think we were after, which was how to generalize. And we were teaching them to not generalize. And um, so if and what I what I did, of course, would see, well, let's see what these other kids are doing. And we would be building towards that and plan the instructional design way ahead of time to get us to there rather than I just going to do one step at a time, one little behavior at a time, one little discrete response. Like that's, I understand that that might be doable and necessary for a technician, but I feel behavior analysts should be thinking long-term. What's the big idea here? Not the next step. That makes a lot of sense. It's almost like navigating your way through a forest. If you don't have a compass to know where you're going, sure, you can be moving what you feel like is forward, but in reality, you might be taking little circles in the woods, right? We've got to sort of orient toward these big goals. And yeah, that's actually a really good um, analogy too, because if you can look at a map and see what the whole forest looks like, you're in a lot better position to get, get there, to navigate through it. But that's kind of what direct instruction does is let you have a bird's eye view of what it is you're doing, right? One of the things I would often ask the behavior analysts that, you know, were under my supervision or influence, I'd say, tell me why you're teaching that. And they would give me this big, like blank look, uh, uh, I don't know, because it's next on the list. Oh, I don't know, because I can. I was like, huh, that probably isn't a very good reason. <laughs> tell me what repertoires we're building. You know, that's, that's, what's important, right. To know where we're going and what it's supposed to look like when we get there. That's helpful. And I think I, I loved your, your plug for the importance of collaborating with other professionals on this topic. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Even if, even if as a behavior analyst, you you do have the skill set to be able to identify larger goals. I mean, that's the, those are treatment team decisions. I have to imagine a lot of those. Uh, that you know the stakeholders and everyone else involved with the team should be involved with if I, if I'm understanding this all correctly. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And we 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 really can't diminish their you know expertise, our, our colleagues' expertise. And honestly, that's how I learned. You know, hmm. I didn't learn um, you know all the stuff about language and academic language and reading and writing from hanging out with behavior analysts. I've learned that from being among my educator friends or my speech language pathology friends, or as a school psychologist, I'm like, ah, oh, I get it. I know what we're supposed to do here. Right now I get where the, where the goal is, you know, you mean other fields have things to offer us <laughs> tons, tons, <laughs> tons. <laughs> so, so much. Yeah. I honestly, I, I think that is the thing that I appreciate the most about my training and my experience is that I was always encouraged, encouraged to collaborate with others. And, um, you know, I was kind of taught, how do you take this humble stance and say, tell me more about that, you know? And I really, really appreciate it because, you know, I've been able to bring single case design work into fields that never had any of that, you know, or even, even this topic, by the way, I did not write on this topic first for behavior analysts. I have a paper in, um, in a speech language journal that is a very similar paper, um, very similar. Of course, it's tweaked for that audience, but it has principles. And I do things all the time in that realm. And they are all behavior analytic, direct instructions, principles, right, that I bring to those other, um, those other domains. But I couldn't have done it without learning from my colleagues. That's great advice. The next effort that you describe is the sequencing content developmentally and logically. So it sounds like once you identify these these big generalizable goals or, or skills that you're targeting that you need to sequence the content uh, accordingly. Could, could you talk a bit about that? Sure. Um, sequencing really is referring to the sequence in which these skills or the the tool skills, the little components of your larger generalizable repertoire um, emerge, right? And therefore should be taught. Uh, One one note I wanna clarify here is that when I use the word developmental, I am not talking about something like developmentally appropriate practice. I'm talking about the sequence with which the sequence in which these skills emerge, right? And that there is one, there is a developmental sequence. And honestly, behavior analysts do not know these things. This is an area that I had to learn from my SLP colleagues around academic language, you know, or do that research myself, okay? Which I I have had to do, like, what is the developmental sequence of these things? How do they emerge, you know? Um, And then the, so that's one piece. We need to know the order in which these kind of like, little more um, refined components emerge. And we have to then put things in those sequences so that we can teach them that way. Um, And then sometimes we might not know what is developmental, right? So then we have to do what's logical. We have to start with what's logical. And there are sometimes when things, a particular content or, or objective can be taught 
in, out, out of a de developmental or a logical order, if they can be done at the same time, um, you know, there's a number of things to consider there because not all skills have this discrete developmental order. So then you might be able to do multiple things at the same time, but then you have to consider whether that's logical to do, how much can your learner tolerate, that kind of a thing. Um, this is also where I really talk about those tool component and composite skills because all repertoires have a hierarchy, right? And it's a mistake to go to this, you know, to target at the composite level when you have not, when the learner has not mastered the component level and you can't really go to the component level unless the learner has mastered those tool skills. So you have to be very intentional about the hierarchy and that kind of like nesting of repertoires, right? Um, and those are things that I would say um, my colleagues in speech language pathology or in reading sciences often overlook, right? Because they're not trained to look at all or task analyze all those little things. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention and here is a really great influential paper by Zig Engelman that was published in 2007. It's about mastery teaching and he talks about the, the staircase, right? And that you have to teach mastery at each step so that the next step is, you know, that you can get to the next step easily with little effort. But if we try to like skip some of those steps in the staircase, the kids' repertoires are going to break down and they're gonna to struggle to get to the next thing. It's very easy to see in math, right? If they're not fluent in addition and subtraction of you know, one, uh, one digit numbers, then they're not gonna be able to do two digits and three digits, that kind of thing. So it, you just have to have those things mastered before you can move on. And if you do, then you can improve the efficiency of one's learning rather than going at the same pace all the time. That's helpful. And, and I think that this, effort seems to be maybe particularly connected to the next effort. So I won't ask too many follow-up questions before we get into that. So to sort of move on to the next effort, organize content into tracks and strands. And I think that these terms are likely new for, for many behavior analysts into this area. So could you break those, those components down? Yeah, sure. First, let me tell you what is traditional and typical in our, in our teaching systems. It's what we call spiral, okay? We often teach a set of skills, right? And then like for a unit, and then we move on to another set of skills for that unit. And then maybe six months or maybe a year later, we come back to those skills that we initially taught and we go a little bit deeper. But what happens in this kind of spiral construction of, of you know, learning materials is that students or learners do not get uh, experience or practice with those earlier mastered skills until it comes around again six months or a year later, right? Whereas in direct instruction, the goal is to create these strands that continue for many, many lessons or units. And that way they're getting, um, you know, intense practice at the beginning, right? And then they get additional opportunities to practice distributed across time. 
Okay. And those newer skills that show up on the earlier side of the sequence, they then are combined to make component skills and then later combined to make composite skills. So the tool skills are always getting practiced and kind of integrated in a sophisticated manner, kind of like a weaving of things as you go along. You're supposed to get more complex. You're supposed to get more generative, more um, higher level as you go. Um, so that's what the tracks are for. Tracks are simply uh, just a series of less or a series of activities that cover multiple lessons, multiple units across time. So the practice is distributed. Could you give an example of, of a strand that you might see interwoven across multiple lessons or targets? Sure, sure, sure. One of the easiest ones, you know, from my own research is talking about, it would be like complex syntactical forms. Okay, so um, in 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 my research, we often are teaching um, maybe storytelling, but then intentionally starting and increasing the emphasis on complex sentences. So like a right branching subordinate clause. And what I mean by that is like, I feel sad because I hurt my knee. Okay, so that second part that started with the because that's a right branching causal subordinate clause. Okay, so I can work on right branching causal subordinate clauses over many lessons. Okay, and the form of that could take, you know, could change. We want variation in that form because what I'm looking for is the, gen the, the generalizable um, pattern, not the specific words, right? So I can work on that. But then I can continue to work on it and use, add in something like so that. So it's another causal subordinate clause. And then, you know, slowly across time within this strand, I can also add in something that's like temporal subordinate clause, which is like, when I fell down this, when I came down the slide, I fell in a mud puddle, right? So again, that's a temporal subordinate clause that's on the left side of the main clause. Okay. And then I can, that was just an example, each lesson, I can work on multiple or different ones so that they're learning the pattern of that, as opposed to the specific words. So when I went to the store, I bought a gallon of milk and eggs, right? And then there's another one. Then you could add in, after I went to the store, I played with my friends at the park, you see? So there's a lot of variation in there, but the strand itself is working on complex sentences. And it's gonna continue across many, many lessons for possibly months. And I just keep working on those like complex syntactical forms. That's extremely helpful. And, and where does a track fall into that example? So that would be the track, the complex syntactical forms. That was the track. And, um, and I, you know, like they can come in and out too, gotcha. right? So like, let's say I started with causal subordinate clause in the track, and then I need, needed to introduce something else, right? So I might pause it for like three or four sessions, and then that track can show up again later. Right. But it's still a track on complex syntactical forms. Gotcha. So is there a distinction between strands and tracks then, or are those terms getting at the same thing? They're, they're the same thing. There's not really a distinction. It just kind of depends on who you're, um, who's writing about it. Sometimes they're called strands. Sometimes they're called um, tracks. So, I mean, I use strands too, to refer to, um, to kind of like the major 
the major things. So in the stuff I do, I may have a strand that's oral story retelling, um, story writing, and then information retell, information writing, like as in figure two. And then the tracks would be the, the more finite ones that um, more specific things like vocabulary, complex sentences, right? But that's just my choice. That's not necessarily uh, definitive. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare say that's the way it is. Everyone uses it that way. So. Well, it's helpful to know. The, the next piece that you talk about in the paper is that you should adopt or create an assessment that reflects the generalizable strategies. Could you talk about what that means? Yeah, like in behavior analysis, not many of our assessment tools are designed to measure this generalization or a generative accomplishment of a particular strategy. And so we may have to think very carefully about how we would do that. Um, so for example, if you're using like the VB map or the ABLES, you know, and it says, you know, 20 objects or something, they're the, they're the exact 20 objects that you taught, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, can they identify objects that you did not teach, right? But require the same kind of repertoire to be able to do it. Now that that's not a really great example because teaching object names or let's say tacting objects by itself, unless you teach it in a generative way, you're not going to get lots of generate gener generalization. Okay. So you might need to create an assessment of that repertoire that you're after, which would require that you're using novel questions or items and novel um, materials. Okay. Now in education and speech language pathology, that's very common. Those are the kind, those content areas that are very common. They're not testing the exact thing that they're teaching. They're teaching something that aligns with it, but reflects maybe generalization and maintenance, you know, which we would call, you know, probably stimulus generalization and maintenance of those skills. Right. Um, so you can often borrow things that are in the realm that are close to your um, content area, okay? Um, or, or you'd have to create it to be able to measure it properly. Now, creating an assessment for one generalizable teaching uh, strategy is not that difficult, but if you've got a lot that you're teaching, that's more challenging, okay? That makes sense. That, that's helpful clarification. Within this section of the paper, you talk about curriculum-based measurement and how that may not be something that's frequently used in, in behavior analysis. Could you, could you talk about what curriculum-based measurement is and how that fits into this category? Sure. Curriculum-based measurement is a, is a great um, assessment tool for measuring this like generative repertoire. Okay, the most commonly known ones are, are tools that are designed to, to, to measure reading fluency. Okay, so let's say oral reading fluency, a child reads a passage, okay, and they've never read that passage before, but they've been taught how to read passages, right? How to read passages is the generalizable strategy, and they're being assessed on a passage that they've never read before. Okay, so then if you can measure what they can do on a new and novel passage, then that's actually measuring the extent to which they've acquired that generalizable strategy, okay, or the teaching that, uh, that you want them to um, 
accomplish or the skill that you want them to accomplish. Let me say that. Um, so, so in curriculum-based measurement, you also have repeated measurement over time. Okay. So you might have it monthly or every two weeks. So you would measure their growth according to this measurement tool repeatedly over time, right? Which is going to more accurately um, reflect what the child is learning and an, an acceleration of sorts, right? But if you're teaching, let's say if we teach and test with the same exact passage, then we don't really know if they've got any kind of generalizable skill, right? We, all we know is that they know how to read this passage, okay? And that's not very helpful, honestly. So we would probably characterize that as like curriculum-based assessment, which we're assessing exactly what we taught or mastery monitor. Those are words that, you know, we use to talk about that mastery monitor. You're monitoring exactly what you, um, what you taught. And in, in discrete trial training, that's exactly what we do. We're just monitoring the mastery of the skills and the targets that we've explicitly taught. Whereas in direct instruction, the assessment needs to be on the repertoire. Okay but never using the exact targets or materials or items that they have been explicitly taught on. Um, I think I can make this a little bit more concrete if I use my own assessment tool that I developed for this, if that's okay with you, Cody. Absolutely. Um, there is, so, you know, I have a background with teaching kids uh, with autism to talk. And um, I was always interested in what do you do with the kids once they hit VBMAP level three? And I'm sure there's a ton of behavior analysts that have the same question. I have heard people say, well, I can't help him anymore. He's got to go on to somebody else because they don't know what else to do, right? So the assessment tool that I created is with my SLP colleague, let me just say that we created um, he really, my colleague, Doug Peterson, he's a speech language pathologist and professor at Brigham Young University. Anyway, he and I worked together to create this assessment tool because we wanted to measure this generative repertoire of oral storytelling. And it's in, and it's in, it's contextualized in a listening, um, and a reading, um, kind of task. So we put our heads together. We came up this with this, it's called the cubed. And the cubed is a suite of assessment of curriculum-based measurement tools. And the one that I'm gonna really dive into a little bit more is called the narrative language measures listening. And basically we just present a simple story to a child. And then we say, thanks for listening. Now you retell it. And while they retell it, we score it in real time. And it's just a simple little story, but what we get is their ability to listen and understand and expressively tell us. And we, it's a language sample as well, which is really popular in speech language pathology, but above the VB map, to know what children need, you need a language sample. You need to analyze the syntactical complexity. You need to analyze the conceptual and vocabulary density, right? You need to know, you need to analyze the organization of their language right? Not just answering questions, more at the discourse level, like how well do they tell what happened to them at school, or they want to tell their mom um, why they have a scratch on their face, or the teacher's like, what did you do over the weekend? Well, guess what? Many of our kids who are at VBMAP level three cannot do that. You know, they can't tell us that. So we need an assessment tool that measures their verbal abilities beyond what is capable with these more discrete um, assessment tools. So the NLM listening has something like 
25 different passages, different stories that you can monitor over time per grade level. So it works for, pre we, have, we have assessments or forms for preschool to third grade for screening and progress monitoring. So there's parallel forms so that you can track changes over time. And by the way, I, I'm not plugging it because I make lots of money about it. It's actually free. You can download it at languagedynamicsgroup.com. It's totally free. We love that we can make it free because it's just a, a product of our research. And we used it with many, many children with autism and many other kids with disabilities, even typically developing kids, kids who are English language learners, it, it's just such a valuable tool to give us that kind of generative strategy assessment, right? So That's does that awesome. make sense? What, yeah. what follow-up questions do you have? <laughs> I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> uh, all really great stuff. Uh, and, and the resource you, you described is, sounds like uh, really, really helpful. And so we'll link to that in our show notes. I think that I love the distinction that you, that you pointed out about the need for assessment to target skills that have not been explicitly taught. Like and when you were talking about, it, I was thinking about when I was a little kid, I had this like, you know, maybe eight page uh, picture book with, you know, maybe like a sentence or something on each page. I memorized what mm -hmm. each page said based off my, my mom reading it to me. And so I could go up to you know, a family member, like I can read this and I can go through and say, I wasn't looking at the words or, or doing any reading. I had memorized just the passages. And, yeah. it, it, and if we're, we're explicitly teaching people, depending on how you're prompting and, and everything like that, it, it's certainly within the realm of possibility that they're not in fact uh, attending to the discriminative stimuli that we think they are or, or, or reading as, as we think they are reading. Mm hmm Mm -hmm. So you just identified one of the reasons why my research has been at that high level of verbal repertoires is because I want to create generative repertoires in our, in our young, you know, vulnerable populations and we can do it. Behavior analysis has that technology. As a, as a matter of fact, it's right here in direct instruction, right? That's, that's the power that I've drawn from in my own research of developing interventions and assessment tools. And and honestly, the other fields are desperate for these things, right? They really are. They are so excited. This NLM listening tool is very popular outside of behavior analysis, but honestly, we need it in behavior analysis too. We need to be able to um, uh, accurately measure these repertoires that are more generative in nature. Otherwise, we, we continue to teach and feel accomplished when we've got kids to memorize things. Yeah. And I, and I think that ties into your point earlier when you were talking about like your supervisees, when you go, why are you teaching this? How mm -hmm. does this fit in to the, the larger goal of, of, and I always tell, talk to my students about the need to, to help our clients build independence and autonomy across skills and across life. Mm -hmm. And are, are, are the skills you're targeting building into a larger picture? I've gone to programs and I've seen students working on tacting dinosaur and I and which very well could come into a, a, an important strand that I'm unaware of but I asked uh, the people who are targeting that with, with by the way students who are extremely limited uh, communication skills and I go why dinosaur exactly and they have no idea they have 
they they can't tell me that and so then i'm left puzzled like how how does that tie in to any functional Mm -hmm. skill much less working toward independence and autonomy Mm -hmm. so one of the things that made me think think of this or something i thought of while you were talking was i struggled a little bit to to know where to put this assessment piece in the in the sequence of design um, efforts And it's right up here, kind of close to the beginning for the reason of that, if we're using assessments to drive the identification of goals, we have a better idea of what it is we might be teaching, right? And then we know upfront why and where we're going. And so I just wanna mention that, that assessment shouldn't be an afterthought. It should really be like, how are we gonna measure this? So if you work with individuals who, you know, need activities of daily living. Let's do that assessment, initial assessment in the context you want them to be able to do that skill and let's see what they can do, right? And those are very big, like composite repertoires that require lots of tool and component skills, you know, and generalizable. So if they were ordering at a restaurant, they're not gonna go to the same restaurant every day, right? So we've got to have some generalization. They're not gonna talk to the same people every day. And you don't want them to say the same rigid thing every day. So, and every time they go to that restaurant. So we, we have to build variability into the, the context that we're measuring and in teaching. And I think it needs to go up front, not as an afterthought. I think that makes sense. You know, one of the criticisms that behavior analysis can sometimes encounter is that we train robotic responding or, or, or much more pejorative, you might say, or we, we, you train robots or something like that. Um, and I, I tend to look at some of the criticisms of our field as always having maybe a, a little nugget of truth in that, or at least there, there's truth amongst our field, right? And so the question is, are we training generalizable skills? Uh, are we training people to have uh, response generalization and, and stimulus generalization? And if you're not targeting those things and assessing those things, then you may be contributing to some of those misnomers and, 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 and criticisms about the field at large, I think. Yep. I'm, I'm in 100% agreement with you. And since, you know, since the 90s, I have seen a lot of... Um, robotic instruction. And I would definitely say that, uh, you know, our, our learners are off. They learn exactly what we teach them and they learn how to learn from the way we teach them. So if we teach them more effectively, then they're going to become better learners. And I, I make that case that that's kind of what direct instruction does is it teaches our learners to become better learners. Right. And I have seen that in my own practice when I have practiced what I preach here, you know, with our, with my students, the parents will say, oh my gosh, he is saying so much things that we have never taught him. And I was like, good, that's what he was supposed to do. You know? That's the goal, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like we could hang out on this assessment piece for a while and that may be uh, hinting at my own sort of interest in assessment. So I'm going to segue off of this and get us into the rest of your efforts that you talked about. So the next piece is determine instructional groupings. And you talk about how flexible learning groups is a hallmark uh, of direct instruction. Can you explain that and talk about that? 
Yeah, sure. Um, you know, there is an old term, probably most of the podcast listeners don't know this, but there is an old term called tracking. And um, in the education system decades ago, we used to track kids where they put them in a group and they stayed in that group forever and ever. So it was like initial assessment, they were done, you know. I, what we're talking about is flexible grouping which is not tracking. It's about identifying their current instructional level and putting them with their peers who are also at that instructional level. But as we know, each children's rate of learning differs. And so as, as some excel and some maybe, you know, have a, have, have a slower rate, we need to regroup constantly, right? And then, you know, different goals, those kinds of things. So it's flexible is really referring to the ability to regroup at any decision point time, right? And I also, in this particular section, um, I really wanna hit home the point that even children with autism can learn or even children with, you know, really, really high support needs can learn in more inclusive contexts. And there, we have gobs of research that suggests that, yet oftentimes our billing or the organization of the way our, our systems are working, clinics and whatnot, we're putting children who can in fact learn in more inclusive contexts are not, you know, they're stuck in this one-to-one. -one. And I've seen really bright, readers, you know, children with autism, very bright kids, and they're still doing instruction one-on-one. -on -one. And I just want to face plant. It's just like, actually, what I want to do is, <laughs> <laughs> that's the wrong word. What do I mean? <laughs> I just want to hit my head against yeah. the wall, right? Because that is taking those kids backward, right? Direct instruction as a technology is one of those things that can get the learners out of this one-on-one, -on -one, uh, like um rut right it's a rut and it's a rut that we don't need to be in because direct instruction is easily delivered to small groups and large group and maintains effectiveness the critical piece is number of opportunities to respond that's the critical piece so if you can convince me that more opportunities to respond are available to that child in a one-on-one -on -one than in small group or, or large group then okay maybe that's necessary but in general, I don't think you can do that. There's, there's going to be some exceptions, you know, and I mentioned some, but like when there's some materials uh, needed, something like that. Um, but if it's an oral uh, response method, then, um, you know, we should be able to teach kids in, in larger groups in a more inclusive way. And that prepares them for the generative type of repertoires that they're going to need in mainstream schools, right, and with their peers. And so I really, uh, I really strongly believe that direct instruction is, is highly influential in helping behavior analysts get there. Well, that makes sense. Uh, learning in groups is, is infinitely more realistic to what their typical education setting might look like, but also just their, their work and life settings. I mean, how many people how many of, of, of the clients we serve are going to end up working in a setting where they're in a booth by themselves in a perfectly quiet environment? I mean, <laughs> we want to, we want to see the, the, we want to help develop skills that are going to end up uh, being reflective of their natural settings that they go to. Um, yeah. Within this instructional groupings, the, the goal here is to, to group people based off of, 
uh, their specific needs or the, the sort of the content that they need to be taught. Is that right? And is that then directly informed by the previous steps that so you would be doing your assessments and, and figuring out in the, the clients or your students where each of their needs are and then coming up with groups. Is there a, is there a Goldilocks number <laughs> of students that we aim for? Is there any guidance on something like that? Yeah, that's a good, those, those are good questions. Um, so we do use the assessments, right? And we try to create, to some extent, homogeneous groupings. However, it's not always necessary, and it depends on what content or skills you're, you're teaching, um, because you can have a heterogeneity in the groups and plan for differentiation, okay? But now it depends on what the content or the context is, how viable that is, right? So in oral language, I can put kids together that have quite, you know, this child is using two words and this child is using, you know, 11 words to say essentially the same thing. That's okay in an oral language modality. I can tolerate that, right? But in another setting like reading, I can't present them with a, a, a passage to read that are like too disparate. So you, it depends on how you're doing that. In terms of Goldilocks range for grouping, the answer is no. There is no Goldilocks, but the, the prime um, consideration is opportunities to respond and, um, and kind of like control of behavior difficulties, okay? So um, the more children you have in a group, behavior management becomes a little bit more challenging, but sometimes it's not depending on what, um, what strategy you're using to increase active responding. Um, cause you can still do that. You can have a high, a high rate of, uh, teaching, do use choral responding and, you know, get everybody on task and that's great. And lots of opportunities to respond. So, but there are going to be some learners who simply can't follow and you're prompting that child three or four times for every response. You know, that kid's probably not, um, ready for group kind of work. Um, and then I would probably, if I was working with the child, um, who has high support needs, and we started with one-on-one -on -one instruction, I would probably add in children to that group one at a time. Let them learn how to respond in a group with two kids, and then with three kids, and then with four kids, you know, to give them that kind of um, success um, and, you know, kind of to shape their independence within a, a, a widening context for that. That makes a lot of sense. And I have some follow-up questions, but I think that in some ways the next three or four efforts sort of are very much so interrelated. So I'll sort of save some questions as we get into these. So the next piece is scripting instruction for teachers and learners. Can you talk about that? Sure. So scripts are another thing that you know, sometimes we get criticized for using scripts, right? There is some sentiments around, you know, scripts are, you know, um, kind of restricting teachers' creativities, and those kinds of things. Well, I, I understand those. I understand those, right? But there's a real important need to script for efficiency and fidelity. And then there's some things that are totally flexible and that should and can be under the control of teacher or the, you know, the instructor's repertoire and they should be right. Um, let me give you a, a short example. 
in some of my earlier funded research, I was planning on making something less, less scripted, right? Mostly because I thought the audience, my teachers, they were Head Start teachers, would not want them to be scripted and that that would be offensive to them. So in my earlier little like iterative development of this, I would ask them, you know, how do you want this? And the teacher comes back to me and she goes, I don't know what to do here. You've got these, I have all these steps, right? Instructions to the teachers. Here's how to do it. Step one, step two, step three, but not scripted in what the teacher should say. And she says, can you write out the script for me? She hands it back to me and says, I need you to just write it out. What do you say? I was like, oh, you actually need this. And sure enough, she needed it. And from then on, we have actually like, provided more scripts. And now I see scripts as kind of uh, an implementation support. It's there when you need it. And a lot of teachers do need it. And unless they can like uh, figure out the formats, there's kind of like a formula in the formats, which the scripts help them learn those formulas. And then once the formulas are learned, you know, if they miss a word here or there, not a big deal, right? But if they're not running the formats the way they're designed, that's a problem, okay? So the scripts are really important to make sure that it's efficient instruction and that it's high fidelity, okay? The other thing, oh, I just thought about it. Um, Oh, yes, scripts help teachers avoid excessively talking, which is actually the next one, right? But teachers who do not know what they're doing next tend to talk too much. And then what we've got is the students or the learners are not responding and the teacher's doing all the responding, which is bad, right? We don't want that. So the script actually keeps the teacher kind of like confined to, this is the important piece of the instruction. Now on occasion, if the teacher says, uses background information of their students to like help them understand what they're doing or gives an additional example, not a big deal. They can embellish that a little bit. As long as they're not embellishing too much that distracts from that script, it should be fine. Again, I'll save my my follow-up questions and we can take this momentum into the need for to prioritize learner responding and minimize teacher talk. Why is that so important? Well, it's so important because what actually counts for learning is active student responding. If the students are not responding, let's say once every 20 seconds at least, like they can respond many more than that, but at least once every 20 seconds, guess what they're going to do? They're going to check out. They're going to engage in problem behaviors. They're going to get bored. They're going to touch their neighbor, whatever they're going to do. Right. And, and Also, if you can do, let's say, five responses in a minute versus five responses in 15 minutes, look at the difference in your instructional efficiency, right? This concept right here is actually pretty hard for your general ed teachers, your SLPs to understand that opportunities to respond is what matters, not how you presented that. Um, I I do a lot of consultation and kind of uh, provide feedback to SLPs and literacy instructors. And the only kind of data that I give them is how many times they responded versus how many times the kids respond. And I show them the data and they go, oh my gosh. (laughs) I said, learning doesn't happen unless your kids or your students are responding. And and they're like, oh my gosh, I talk too much. Because they're so good at presenting this beautiful book. They're reading this book and they say all these great things. They put on a performance, but their kids are not responding, right? And And, and that matters. 
sorry, go ahead. Cody. No, I was going to say, and I, I imagine that even has to be exacerbated or the issue with getting student involvement gets worse if you're not looking at choral responding in other ways of getting sort of group responses. And so could you talk about how that might be intertwined within this strategy and, and when those would be useful? Exactly. So there are ways to increase active responding, right? And that's what we want to do. We want to minimize the teacher talk, increase student active responding. Let's say I have a group of 20 kids and I want them to tell a story. Well, having them tell a story one at a time would take me four hours to get these kids to all get that opportunity. So there's a couple of things I can do. I can, I can break them up into smaller groups. So like groups of three or four so that they can take turns telling the story, right? I could do the story in parts and do choral responding. So I'm going to say a part and signal, then the whole class tells me that same part. They repeat what I said, okay? And another thing I can do is like class-wide peer tutoring, where I break the kids up into little pairs where, and each kid takes a turn doing that story, okay? All of those procedures increase active responding, okay? And, and um, they also, oh, sorry, I forgot one, response cards. The response cards is another uh, strategy to increase active responding. And in my storytelling programs and intervention, we use a, a number of games. I think they're in the, yeah, it's figure four. But another one that we do is we have kids make gestures. So in the large group, rather than giving kids all these like bingo cards and stuff like that, we got 20 kids, we would have them make a gesture that corresponds to the parts of the story so that they're actively participating, even if they're not talking themselves. So these response card games, including story gestures is what we call it, require like requires that the students are actively responding and that the teacher is doing a minimum level of, of you know, talking to get the children to respond. So those are all great strategies for increasing um, active responding and it, which, which of those procedures is determined by how large the group is, right? Some are very appropriate for small groups, some are appropriate for large group, so on. That makes a lot of sense. And I have to imagine when, when you were beginning to talk about the importance of maximizing learner responding and you referenced at minimum getting learner responses every 20 seconds, some people might go, oh my goodness, how, how could I possibly get so much learner responding going and minimize my instructional talk? And that I think ties right back into the previous step, which is scripting Scripted. out, yeah, scripting out that instruction, whether whether you're doing it yourself, following the sort of parameters you talked about or the format you talked about, or, or utilizing other scripted lessons. The next effort is um, ordering the instructional trials for maximum discrimination. Could you describe what that means? Oh, I, I can, but the, this one is actually quite complex. You can make this, you know, you can go really deep on this. And I reference a couple other articles in the special issues that really talk about this. Um, essentially, there are some principles or guidelines for how to order your items and the examples and non-examples, which, you know, we're, obviously we haven't said yet, but multiple exemplar training is key or general case instructions is key in direct instruction. And so you have to have examples and non-examples to be able to 
to help your learner differentiate. Depends on what the concepts are. You know, I don't, um, in this particular paper, I don't go into a lot of detail, but in the others, there's like concept learning and then the faultless communication piece from um, Janet Twyman. Those are really great pieces. Um, but the general rules are that you need to, um, the first one is that you use the same phrasing. Right. You want to use the same phrasing uh, for the different kind of items so that you're not confusing kids, because if you use different phrasing to in your response direction to students, they, they, can, they have to learn the phrasing of your question as well as the answer to the question. OK, um, then you also need to begin with examples and non examples that are exactly alike, except for one feature. Right. So that there, it's easy to make that discrimination. And as your sequencing goes, um, or then you can make them vary a little bit more. Um, it would, it's nice to have um, consecutive trials that vary different, that vary, right? So trial two varies from trial three quite drastically. That also helps the discrimination. And then the last one is you should be folding in untaught um, exemplars as you go, because it's going to test that generalizability nature of what you're teaching. Um, so you always kind of want to add in some things for generalization. Um, so those are kind of like the generic roles for that. Um, and they vary so much to, or how they manifest varies depending on the kind of uh, concept or skill repertoire you're teaching. That's one of the reasons why I couldn't really go into more detail is because it really depends. Yeah. And I would love to, to sort of spend more time talking about this, but like you said, it's, it's almost a, a paper in and of itself and or an episode of that cast in and of itself. So we'll sort of skim over that for now to save a little bit of time. We're, we're, we're sort of winding things down. We've got two more efforts less left. The second to last and ninth effort is engineering transfer of stimulus control through intentional instructional formats. Could you describe that? Yes, so actually this one is my very favorite. I was thinking maybe someday you would be asking me, what's your favorite? And I would say this one. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yes, this one is my favorite because if we do not do this, we have not taught anything. It's very, very important. And, um, you know, I think for some time, I didn't quite realize that there was something special in this particular principle that I, I would say to my friends, wait, wait, you don't know about that? You know, and they'd be like, no, no, wait, what's that instru uh, instructional trial analysis? Tell me that again. You know, most of us learn like a three-term contingency or a four-term, right? You get some components, but the expanded trial analysis that's in, pay, um, let's see, table one, um, this is really important to understand that there are more components of a trial and that those key elements um, will adjust the difficulty of a particular trial. Okay. And, um, you know, the key ways. So, for example, you, you can use attention signal, you can have a task stimulus, stimulus direction. Uh, stimulus prompt, response prompt, response direction, signal response and feedback. But most of our trials, when in discrete trial, we're simply using a response direction, response, and then the feedback, right? That makes it three. But there are many other options to integrate into that would change or alter the difficulty of, um, of them. Some of them would be, um, let's see, inserting 
uh, a stimulus or response prompt, right? So if you add prompts to it, which we're also familiar with that, Mo um, you know, stimulus or response prompts are used often by behavior analysts. Um, but we might not be very strategic in them in a sequence of instruction over time. We might do it within that session. Um, but we're, what we're talking about here is leading to um, something more systematic over time. Um, we can also modify the task stimulus itself. So, so things like stimulus fading, positioning stimuli, highlighting relevant features, those are very common in behavior analysis. Um, but you can also change the response direction. So if I was to say point two versus touch or what is, those are changing the response direction and it changes what you're getting from that individual and the condition that you're providing to them for that response. Um, but then I think this other four, um, figure five kind of shows an example of how those things are manipulated and how you would start with more help and then be very systematic about changing that instructional format. And my, when I use the phrase instructional format, what I'm talking about is kind of like a, a generic or a general pattern, kind of like a frame, something that's manipulative, right? You can put in a different response direction, a different response, whatever, but it's the format that stays the same. Um, it's this manipulative frame, okay? So you create these frames or formats based on the expanded trial analysis. And then you sequence them that make sense for each of those uh, strands or tasks, skills that you're, that, you're, um, that you're trying to teach. And that is really key to engineer transfer of stimulus control. So earlier in the lesson, when you have new material, right? The teaching functions are, you know, new material guided practice, independent practice. Um, if you have, New, in new material, you would use a format that has lots of support. And then during guided practice, you would be fading that support and using maybe several different instructional formats that gradually withdraws some of those trial elements so that the, the learner is responding more and more independently. And then at the very end of that same session, that same lesson, you should have some independent trials, meaning all the additional supports are gone. All that's left is the response direction, response, and the feedback. Right. That's kind of what we're after. And that engineering of these formulas or these formats. Sorry, I keep using different words for it, but they kind of all are those things. You know, you could refer to them as formulas, too. They are formulas. They're instructional formulas that yield formats. OK. And these after a lesson, you would um, transfer the stimulus control from these highly supportive formats to highly independent formats. And that's how we get generative independent repertoires okay and that's very very critical to direct instruction that's awesome and a really helpful framework of thinking about what is a are you calling it an instructional unit or like what what is that sort of I mean, I already gave you like formula formats. <laughs> that's formula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. I think that's, I would call those instructional formats, but within a lesson, you're going to use multiple instructional formats, that, which is different than like discrete trials. In discrete trial for this skill, I do this, 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 this at this prompt level, right? right? It doesn't vary within the lesson. Whereas in direct instruction, it varies within the lesson. You start with heavy instructional support and you fade within that. So you're transferring the stimulus control within session. 
Okay. Right. So that lesson itself has multiple instructional formats and I called them kind of frames because you can put many different, um, different response directions, different responses that you're going to fill in there different, you know, you could, you could be working on all sorts of vehicles, you know, bus, helicopter, van, whatever, all within the same lesson and using those in, instructional formats very strategically across the lesson. So by the time you're done, whatever it is you're asking, you might ask for something completely novel, but they no longer need the support for it. You know, that's, that's helpful clarification. Uh, we're, we're getting close to our time. So I'm going to move on to our, our final effort, which is plan for immediate corrections. Can you explain what that means? Sure. Uh, effective corrections are specific immediate and help the learner be successful. So the learner actually has to respond correctly as well. And we don't want to wait until the end of a series of responses we want to correct immediately. Um, we want to be very specific, make sure that they understand what they were supposed to do. And it's also very positive. We never focus on the errors. You know, we don't stop and explain why they made the errors. What that does is put more attention on the error than it does on the correct response. So we just want to put the attention and energy onto the correct response and let them move forward after admitting the correct response. So. And would, would the type of error correction or the type of correction that you're providing, would that fall into the previous step in terms of the formula or format? Is that all part of that unit? So interesting, technically the correction falls into the feedback on the expanded trial analysis but your corrections actually have formats too. So that's a, that was a really good question. There are instructional formats in your correction, all right? And you do have to make a decision about what kind of correction format you're gonna use. And um, you know, we explicitly include them in my scripted interventions, right? Here's the, if this is the error, this is the correction format you use, right? Script the correction for them too. Um, I think I make note in the paper that you would correct like vocabulary differently than it, um, not including something in your story, right? So you kind of have to differentiate your corrections based on what kind of error they make, but that would differ across content. So it's hard to say this is the one that's going to work for everyone. Um, but if it is an oral response, uh, direct instruction often uses model lead test or I, I say model lead retry. Um, but you can drop the lead and just do a model retry, that kind of thing. I wish we had all day to talk about this. It's been a fascinating conversation, but again, I want to be respectful of your time. And as we sort of wind this interview up, are there any resources or suggestions you have for behavior analysts who are just now beginning to learn about direct instruction anything that they could seek out other than reading the direct instruction and precision teaching special issue that this paper was part of? I wish I had a really good answer for you. Um, the, one of the only things that I think is available is maybe um, applying for the Summer Institute at the Morningside Academy in Seattle. So Kent Johnson continues to run a summer program. I don't know how COVID has affected it, but um, 
you know, 20 years ago, that's how I got some really good hands-on training and, and direct instruction. I mean, I was book learned before that, but it really made it real. Right. And it's a very intensive, I'm not even sure how many weeks they do it anymore. I think when I went 20 years ago, it was five weeks. I feel like I was there for the summer and I read like 60 books or something. It felt like a lot, um, but I learned a lot. And I think that's a, a place in a way, if you've got the time and energy, I would absolutely invest in that. I think it's terrific. Um, I think there is a small, small cadre of behavior analysts who are interested in direct instruction. And I think it would be great to have some kind of direct instruction study groups, you know, across the country and, you know, people who are really interested in learning how to design instruction. And, and frankly, since Zig Engelman is gone, we're probably not going to get a lot more published curricula, you know, from him. And so it's time that the next generation of behavior analysts do some of that, right? They can do it. Now, it doesn't mean that your 10 instructional design efforts, if you put them into um, action, that it's going to result in a curriculum that's going to be sold by, you know, a publisher, but it would be useful within your setting for more than just one child, right? That's the goal is to create something that is really, um, you know, useful for lots of your learners. Um, yeah. That makes sense. And those are great resources. Thanks for sharing them. I had, I've had many friends do the Morningside Academy and I will echo Trina's sentiments about its utility. Um, we'll link to the, the website to look at registering or applying for that program, but it's a tremendous yeah. resource. Trina, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for coming on the show today and providing this resource. Sure. I'm really glad I was able to write the paper and that I hope it makes sense to behavior analysts and some, you know, like the, the title is really about picking up the torch, right? Um, we, I feel like it's our responsibility because direct instruction is such an amazing technology. And I feel like it's, a, it's at risk of going extinct, right? And this is something our science, our practitioners should be able to, you know, carry forward to not just in our own, you know, field, but beyond because it is highly applicable to other areas. So I, I really hope that people will, you know, take this to heart and really do their due diligence and learn about direct instruction so that they can, you know, contribute in a broad society. So perfect call to action. Yes, that is my call to action. Go do it. Take up the torch, man. That's right. Before you take off, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use. And to find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bat papers that we should review. I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervias and Jesse Perrin, and my production assistants for this episode, Tatiana Pular and Chloe Calkins. Finally, thank you to Jim Carr and his band New Latitude for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>